Welcome to Conversations, a Tear Fund Northern Ireland podcast connecting global voices to local issues. How good is it to be back, Gemma, on the podcast again this month? I'm actually buzzing and I'm not just saying that. It's been one of the highlights of this term, I think, at Tear Fund. It's been so fun getting to glean the wisdom of people and also just connect people from all around the world. I go in in the evenings and tell my three-year-old who I've been talking to and where they're from. And he's very excited because he... Yes, you know, he's three, but so he thinks that like Spider-Man and crocodiles live in South America. So he's kind of learning through my own experiences here. How are you finding it? Well, regular listeners will notice I've had a cough. It feels like for months <laughs> now, so uh, that's ongoing challenge. But Gemma, there was big excitement um, this week. Do you want to hear about it? Tell me. Well, first of all, today's podcast guest is wonderful. Yes. And uh, we're going to introduce her in a little moment, mm-hmm. but... Word has spread around Tear Fund <laughs> about the Tear Fund Northern Ireland podcast. Okay. So this might be exaggerated, this story I'm about to tell you. It's apocryphal, let's say that. So <laughs> Ni- Nigel Harris, CEO of Tear Fund, rings me up on the phone and says, Chris, I've heard about the podcast. I need, <laughs> I need to be on there. Can you make space? Yeah. I said, I said, well, Nigel, we're, we're busy, but... Maybe we could do a you know a, a special bonus edition. Mm. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. I have to just <laughs> clarify that's not true at all. Yeah. Uh, but Nigel Harris, CEO of Tearfund, yes. will be on the podcast uh, in the coming months, um, and we're really looking forward to that. We really so, are. Uh, and if you if if you are listening and you have questions from the episodes that you've heard so far, or you've had a question about Tearfund, no matter how hot or cold, controversial, easy, whatever, then we will just put it to Nigel because he's the guy who answers those questions. So please get in touch with your questions there. So today we are actually interviewing one of my heroes, uh, Renee August, who is a theologian, a peace builder, an Anglican priest, and just she's incredible. Her story is incredible and the way she communicates. Her vision is just stunning. So I am so excited to interview her. And before we get to that, Chris, what have you been thinking about Tearfun? What's your highlight been? What's been going on for you? Ooh, good question, Gemma. Do you know what? The podcast has been a sort of... um microcosm of my tier fund experience because people have been feeding back saying how great it has been to hear stories from the ground how moving at times it's it's been to hear the passion and the prayerfulness the action of of parts of our tier fund family Mm -hmm. and i guess that's probably how i feel about it uh, all the time a real privilege to connect with these people um a humbling privilege to play just the tiniest tiniest little role yeah. In, in the wider tier fund um, team effort, uh, spirit-led, spirit-empowered kingdom effort with our partners in the ground to see an end to extreme poverty. So um, that's what makes the podcast so special is that we get to invite you, the listener, to be part of that privilege a little bit as well. Mm, wonderful. Well, we will be right back with Renee August. So Renee August has recently joined Tear Fund as a peacebuilding specialist. She was born in 1971 during apartheid into a Black Christian family and has a unique and powerful understanding of how we faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of oppression. She is a lifelong theology student as well as an ordained Anglican priest and is passionate about sharing stories of God at work in the world. 
Here at Tear Fund, she has a particular focus on empowering women and girls and young people to be agents of transformation in their communities. So Renee, welcome. Um, during our introduction, I shared that you were born in 1971 during apartheid. Can you tell us where you grew up and give us an understanding of what that was like for you and, and for your family? Sure. Thank you, Gemma. I live in the lands of the San and the Khoi people, indigenous to this place, in the city now known as Cape Town, in the lands now known as South Africa. And my family was classified according to the apartheid system um, instituted by essentially a Dutch government uh, ruling in South Africa. We had been colonized by the Dutch and the British um, over a course of a few hundred years. And um, the references of, you know, my ancestry being descendant of apes, or monkeys, for example, would would be part of the discourse that we grew up with. And it's in that particular space that we had to find ways of speaking about ourselves that didn't buy into the lies mm -hmm. that the government was trying to tell us, mm -hmm. nor their theology was trying to sell to us as a consequence of the way they read and used scripture. Mm -hmm. and, and can you tell us what it was like or, or what you observed from watching your parents and your family as Christian people respond to, I mean, such evil, the evil of racism? Well, it's an interesting question because my there isn't one response. Mm. Um, there were a number of responses and politics I think in almost every household was quite a controversial conversation, okay. as I'm sure it is in the land you find yourself mm -hmm. in. And many nuances are necessary to embrace the complexity mm -hmm. that exists within those spaces. And so I was born into a family who all claimed to follow Jesus and was committed to the ways of Jesus and the life of Jesus. But I quickly learned that there wasn't always agreement about what that looked like. Okay. For some, the narrative was very much God is sovereign, God is in control. So if apartheid is a system of South Africa, then surely God knows that. And God has allowed it. And so we need to find ways to endure this. And then there were others in my family who um, would say almost the exact opposite. To say, yes, God is sovereign. And we are God's body on earth. And so we need to participate in making the dreams of God come true. And this system, this theology, this political ideologies of apartheid is a violation of the fundamental commandment to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Um, it violates this idea that we are all created in the image of God. And so we need to recognize it as heresy and as evil and as disciples of Jesus, faithfulness looks like opposing apartheid and mm -hmm. fighting against the system that is seeking to... Um, require us to foster hate and division. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Renee, just you know, Gemma said that you're now have this role as a peace building specialist within Tear Fund. Can you tell us a bit about 
what that means and what it looks like day to day or week to week? This work of peace building is something that is very interesting to me. When Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus says, blessed are those who do the work that make for peace, for they will be called children of God. And Jesus is revealed to us as part of his identity as the Prince of Peace. And so I don't see how we can be disciples of Jesus, whether you work for Tefund or not, and not be people who do the work that builds peace and makes for peace. And so I see it as an integral part of my vocation. Um, I just happen to also have the job title and... I'm still learning about what that looks like within a, a bigger global organization, um, trying to navigate these as priorities. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Renette. Your role in particular, or maybe your passion in particular, I, I understand is women and young girls and about young people mm-hmm. and the potential there is there for to be change makers. Does that energize you? Where does that that energy come from in you, from your experience? I think one of it is that I took my faith quite seriously as a child. Um, I was four when I first gave my heart to Jesus. And when I first spoke about wanting to follow Jesus, I sort of got a little pat on the head, you know, oh, that's very nice, kind of a list of don't do this, don't be naughty, don't steal, don't swear, don't fight, don't tell lies. And it didn't give me a whole lot to do. And so I guess that stirred in me as a child, but I find as I'm um, getting older, I don't always want to admit that, but, um, you know, I am 50. I I think especially with with the issues that young people have and the causes and campaigns and uprisings that they've been among students have been really educational for me because my framing of this story and legacy of apartheid, even though the laws of apartheid have gone, there wasn't a lot of recognition of the systems that were created as a consequence of apartheid. And those systems continue to exist today, systems that seek to give preference to a minority um, and oppress a majority. They're all systems that seek to alter slightly, even very slightly, the identity that God affirms for us about us in Scripture. And these systems also conspire at the same time to create the wealth of the rich and the poverty of the poor. And young people have helped me understand this. So I wouldn't have had that language to articulate what I've just said if it wasn't for my engagement with a group of people in their 20s who in many ways reject people like Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and say, you know, they might be your heroes, but we think that they sold us a pipe dream, you know, because our lives have not changed. And South Africa is still 
in desperate need of transformation. The city I live in is the city in the world with the largest economic divide between rich and poor in the world, in the world. And this is a post-apartheid reality. So the worldview and the framing of young people actually educates me, helps me learn, helps me appreciate their point of view, um, and, and helps me understand the world in a different way. So I, I just think it's absolutely necessary that everyone listens to young people because on my continent, the continent of Africa, the average age is 19. And the average age of the church leader in Africa is 60, six zero. So there's a discipleship crisis here. Um, in my particular denomination, there's just the list of clergy who won't be around in the next 24 months. They'll all be retired. And there's this vacancy and a crisis about what's going to happen to the church. And, you know, young people aren't worried about that because they're saying, yeah, we need to reimagine the church. But it is also a, a testament to our lack of imagination and lack of trust when you think that Jesus left this entire work of discipleship and sharing the good news of the gospel with the whole world in the hands of a bunch of under-20s. So if Jesus is doing that, then, like, why would I not? Renee, I'm just thinking about uh, a church leader or a political leader who's listening today and wondering about then how they can engage better with people who are under 20 or in their 20s. You mentioned imagination there and trust. What other words of advice would you have? Um, I would talk very passionately about the need to give away power. If you follow Jesus... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, knowing full well <laughs> that equality within the Trinity was a reality. He did not consider that position of power something to use to his own advantage. He emptied himself of power, taking on, Paul says, the nature of a slave, as, as someone who is powerless in the system. Um, Jesus was born a race, a hated race. Jesus was born into a family, an economically impoverished family. So Jesus didn't have social power, economical power, political power. Um, his body was racialized and he was born at the time of King Herod. I mean, Herod makes Hitler look like a good guy. And yet the scriptures tell us at the right time. So self-preservation is definitely not a part of the narrative of being a disciple of Jesus. So if you're a politician and you are wanting to do your work faithfully, you need to give away your power, I would say. Don't invite young people to the table. Ask them to invite you to their table. 
because when we make space for young people, I say that in air quotes, we still set the table, we still prepare the menu, we decide when the table will be opened and who else sits at the table. Um, so it's, it's the work of being invitational, not welcoming. Welcoming requires you to come to me first. Jesus was not that kind of savior. Um, and this commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you can't do that if you only want to do it inside your space and on your terms and conditions. It doesn't work that way. And so young people, and especially women, are underrepresented in virtually every place of power in the world. And so that's why that is such an important priority for me. That's so wonderful and so challenging for every context, I think, um, really. Um, something that you've spoken about before, um, which I love, is how important it is that we read the Bible with people who don't look like us or who don't think like us or um, come from contexts that are different from ours. Where has that conviction come from? Wow. Many places, but I would say mostly from my experience first of, um, of doing training, actually. I worked for a unit um, at the University of Stellenbosch, and one of the things we did was we offered training for church leaders all around the country. And we have sort of nine provinces, and we would use the same passage of scripture. And the entire program was just like, you know, run on repeat, and when we asked the same question, what is God saying to the church today, that discernment would change depending on where I was and who was in the room. And so that made me very curious. Um, I would say the second influence in that is um, a group of friends who uh, gathered under this umbrella called Amahoro, Amahoro is a word for shalom in Kirundi. And um, we gathered with maybe 40, 45 friends and, and spoke about this challenge that we find in, you know, understanding what the gospel is because something about it is not working. When we think about Rwanda, 98% of Rwanda was Christian. It was considered the most reached nation in the world in 1993. And we all know 1994, the genocide. And so many of those happened inside churches. And so we, we were trying to understand, so what difference does the gospel make in the world and especially on the continent of Africa? And we identified um, everybody had to come with a list of top 10 issues that we think Africa has to deal with if we are going to have a bright future. And as we consolidated those, you know, top 10 issues, we ended up with a list of eight things. And a few of us made a commitment to meet together once a year and read the Bible through those spectacles, as it were. And so one of it, for example, was the environment. And so we, we spent a year reading scripture through this lens of the environment and see what it is that we learn from that. 
And I describe it kind of like, you know, when you look at a drop of water through a microscope, well, when you look at it with your naked eye, you go, oh, that's a drop of water. You look at it through a microscope and multiply it by 100 and you see something else. And then you magnify it and you begin to see microscopic beings, organisms living inside this drop of water that you cannot see with your naked eye. But because you change the lens, you can still look at the same thing, but you see different things. And so I guess we did that with the reading of scripture. We were very intentional about how we gathered and we insisted that the conversation had to be open to everyone, but no more than 20% from the minority world so that the minority world would know and feel and see that they are a minority and have a minority opinion and worldview. And then because South Africa is such a different animal, uh, 10% from South Africa, and then 70% from the rest of the continent of Africa. So it was an African conversation, African-led. We welcomed anyone from the majority world and people from the minority world would need to pay for three people. And, and as we had those conversations, um, I was able to see things that had always been in scripture, but completely blew my mind. And, and a typical example of this would be John 3 verse 16, which says in the Greek for, well, I won't say the Greek, but the, the word that is used there by John is for God to love the cosmos that God gave Jesus. That messed with my mind because I was always told in Sunday school to take out the word world and put my name there. And I think that's heresy to reduce the salvation work of Jesus to me and so that, yeah, that's just one example of, you know, how you read scripture through a, with a different set of spectacles and suddenly you see something that's always been there, but it completely transforms everything else that you're able to see. Um, and then you read in Paul's writings, like, for Christ came to redeem all things, not all people, all things. The amount of times he says all things, all things, all things. All things, all creation is gathered before God's throne. Like, not just all the people. And so, you know, the Lord of the Rings image of the trees walking <laughs> together at the throne of God. Um, yeah, just makes the salvation story bigger and makes the power of God bigger and makes the salvation work of Jesus so much bigger than I previously imagined. Um, and that would never have happened if I only read the Bible with people who look like me and think like me and have my worldview. I, I had to do the work of actually listening to other people's perspectives on scripture. So much to uh, unpack in that for us. Um, but uh, moving on to, to think a little bit more about peace, Rene, um, I think most Christians, most church leaders would understand that they have a biblical call to, to be peacemakers uh, and that Jesus 
as you said, identified himself as our Prince of Peace. And yet the church has failed largely to live up to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or worse, has been silent or complicit uh, somewhere in that spectrum. Why, why do you think we've got that wrong historically? Yeah, I go back to the words of Desmond Tutu. We've forgotten that we belong to each other. And, and we started reading the Bible with people who look like us, which then gives us permission to center ourselves and go, oh, this must mean us. We're either the victim or we are the hero. We're never the villain. And so our inability or our ability to be blinded to the places where we are complicit um, in the creation of violence is, is aided by how we read scripture. And um, when I think about the story in my own country, um, again, apartheid was a theological conflict. It was a group of old white men who sat in a room and read scripture and went, yes, this land, God gives land to people. God has given us this land. And this is our inheritance and we are the head and not the tail. And, you know, all of those stories um, about victory and supremacy and the centering of themselves happened in isolation. And they forgot that actually God was saying that to a group of people who were in exile. and who were displaced and poor and had no imagination for what their future would be. And then they made conclusions about what those scriptures mean that only benefited them. And so I always um, try to, if I come to any theological conclusions as I read scripture, I need to ask who is empowered by the story and who is disempowered. And then go to the people who are disempowered and say, how do, how do you understand this passage? Um, so I would say the church is being siloed, that actually saying I go to an evangelical charismatic church or a Catholic church or I go to a Presbyterian church or like it, it's reductionist. And... God is always creating room for the other and always commanding us to love. And when we don't take that seriously, when we don't have that as the framing of how we interpret all of Scripture, then then it will create conflict because we will then compete. Um, So if I must love you, Chris, and you must love me, then there's no room for exclusion. Not, not if we both say we follow Jesus. Renee, in Northern Ireland, we're aware of some churches doing just such amazing work in loving well and fully um, and being peacemakers in their communities. Do you have stories that you would like to share with us, maybe just one or two from around the world of where that's gone right? Um, yeah, one story that came to mind is in Rwanda. There's a group called REACH and they do reconciliation work they asked the question, where is the biggest need for trust in our very rural context? 
And as they spoke about that, they realized it was your water source. Because the easiest way I can kill you or cause harm is to contaminate your water. It's easy. And so what they had was these groups of people who previously were at war with one another, living as neighbors and sharing a water tank. It speaks of such a deep need for trust between them um, that the one survival is dependent on the other. And so it, it also proclaims a truth about what they believe as they as they continue to live that. I, mean, I have a scribble of notes on my bit of paper here, flat out. This is really, really interesting. Um, and it actually leads on to, to my last question here. Um, here in Northern Ireland, on a more local level, there's no shortage of people who experience poverty on a scale and also who are oppressed by some of those systems that you described earlier in different ways, behaviours, relationships, cultures that maybe prevent their flourishing. Um, thinking about a local church leader who yeah. maybe in the last 18 months has moved to respond to some need and maybe something like what the warehouse has been doing, very immediate needs on their doorstep. Um, how, do, how does a church leader move from that to beginning to address the, the causes or the roots um, of, of the immediate need? How do we move beyond that to some of the, the bigger issues at play? Yeah, that is a, an interesting question. Um, and I would just say that I could give many responses to this, but I'll keep it to one and say food. When you look at what's happening in the world right now, there are essentially five global companies who are wanting to control all the seeds in the world. How evil is it that you want to control all the food in the world, mostly through GMO crops. Destroy the soil <laughs> and control all the seed. Now that's power. So what can a local church do? What can a local individual church member do? I would say plant gardens. Do the Jeremiah 29, not verse 11, verses 4 and 5. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Turn your church parking lot into a food garden. And, and don't put a fence around it. Just stop using pesticides and start growing some food. Um, learn to compost. Invite your church to bring all the compost waste to your church garden grounds and make compost and grow some food and give it away. Because when people can put food on the table, they don't have to work to put food on the table. They can begin to reimagine their own lives, not just to work to put food on the table. That will provide a learning and a discipleship space, I think, for what we will need in the future. We might not necessarily need it now. This is inspiring me to go and do some growing in my garden this weekend. <laughs> um, but Renee, just as we close this episode, um, I'm wondering if you can teach us how we can pray for peace, both in our lands and around the world. And, and would you lead us in that? I'd love to let us pray together. 
God, the challenges we face are so big, so complex, so confusing. And in so many of these ills, we are complicit. Give us courage to face the truth. Give us wisdom to know what the next step looks like. Grow our hearts so that we can love one another. Give wisdom to all who have power. Give us courage to listen to young people and to join their conversations and their tables and relinquish our own power. And teach us how to make disciples so that we too can learn like you to trust that this is God's work and God will do the work no matter whose face or body the work is held in. And so in the words of Jesus, as he spoke to his disciples and taught them to pray, we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us all, all of us today, our daily bread and cancel our debts as we cancel the debts of those who owe us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from every kind of evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours alone forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Renee, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to to see you and to speak with you. And uh, maybe someday we'll be able to do it in person and uh, continue stage two of the conversation. But for now, it's been a real a real privilege to have your time. And uh, on behalf of our listeners, uh, thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom and your learning with us. Wow, that was such a rich conversation. I'm not even sure how to start debriefing. Chris, do you have a takeaway as one possible? So many. I think the thing that struck out for me was the the commitment to read scripture with people who aren't like us. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the the length, the commitment to read it for a year Mm -hmm. in a particular way, and then to do that year after year after year. Yeah. For maybe eight or nine nine years. So... I mean, I don't think, I don't commit to things for that length of time, <laughs> uh, you know, let alone reading scripture, which is so central to our lives as Christians. So that really struck a chord to me, a deep commitment, not only to God's word, mm-hmm. which 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 I love, but also then it's coming to, to marry that with our heart for, for justice and for yeah. other people. Uh, uh, that was inspiring. That was so inspiring. What about you? Um, I think for me, there was this kind of, the kind of thread that ran through what Renee was saying that was sort of um, just reminding me of, of the flipping tables and the 
like reversing power, giving power away. The way she talked about, you know, how to engage with young people being not to just invite them to our table, but to ask them to invite us to theirs, I think is just a really powerful, powerful way of thinking about it and underpinned by this idea that there is enough. God has given us enough for each of us, but not if we hoard food or par or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, uh, not to make a pun here, but so much food for thought. I feel like my head is spinning. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing to see church community gardens <laughs> growing out of the back of maybe something that somebody's picked up from what Renee shared and not just as a way to feed people and meet an immediate need, but as a way to invite people. Invitational, not welcoming. That was the way yes. she used. And something like a garden which is open all the time, people are invited in, but in that space we have listening and relationship. Uh, and in that space, that's where the gospel works in the context yeah. of relationship with people on our doorsteps. That's yeah, wonderful. Vision. Totally. So Chris, what is coming up in the next few episodes? Ah, oh, so exciting. So many things, Gemma. As I mentioned at the start, we have Nigel Harris, CEO of Tear Fund, who has agreed, I asked him, just to clarify that record, uh, and he's agreed very graciously to give us some of his time uh, to speak to our podcast listeners. Yeah, so listen, folks, we would love to hear from you about this episode. What have you taken away from it? And what would you like us to ask Nigel? Brilliant. Stay tuned. Subscribe, follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of the other places that you get your podcasts. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you again next month. <laughs>